So, Father, thank you that um, we're here. Thank you that though we're few, um, you don't take any notice of numbers. You have something to say to each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that, um, oh, thank you that you do speak, Lord, and thank you that we can we can know that we can come to you and praise you through all the difficult times, all the times when we don't know the answers and we don't know what to do. We can come to the God who does know what to do and who has the answers. And and though that's sometimes um, hard for us, Lord, to um, discipline ourselves to do that, help us to do that, Father, as we uh, go on. Help us to praise you, even in the midst of trouble and trial and difficulty. And thank you, Lord, that when we do, the blessing is so amazing. Thank you that um, that you do um, inhabit the praises of your people and that your presence is made known to us as we do praise you and, um, and come to you in thanksgiving. I want to pray for all those people who are not here this morning, Lord, for those who are um, away for different reasons because they're not well or have gone to the funeral, the thanksgiving services that are going on this morning. Lord, that you would... Um, just remind people that you are a holy, righteous God and that you have the whole world in your hands and that your plans and purposes are being worked out, Lord, in our lives. And though we sometimes or often don't see it, Lord, you, you do have a wonderful plan for our lives and it will result in blessing upon blessing. And I thank you so much for that, Lord, for myself and for all of us here. So we pray, Lord, as we go through Luke and, um, and, uh, and ask you, Lord, to speak loudly so that we do really hear your voice through these words. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Hello, Maureen. We were just thinking about you. How are you? Is it raining out there? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, come and get a cup of tea or something, Maureen. Don't, don't worry about that. So um, one of the things I, th I was thinking about as I was preparing for today was the fact that it's so easy to forget that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know the scripture tells us that, but we, I often forget that, that, that he's never changed, actually. That when he came as a baby, he was still God. He was the unchanging God. And, um, and that though he uh, temporarily... Um, laid aside some of his uh, power, shall we say, he still had that power. So it's not that he was a different God or that he was just a man or he was God, 100% God and 100% man. You, you might think, why, why am I saying that? Well, that is a very common teaching in the church today that, that, that Jesus, although was God, laid aside his divinity. That's not true. He did not. And... Uh, and the teaching goes, he laid aside his divinity, and then John the Baptist uh, uh, baptized him. The Holy Spirit came down upon him, which the scriptures record. And uh, there's this voice from heaven, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And that the Holy Spirit then indwelt Jesus, and he then became uh, someone who could do the powerful miracles that he did. Yes, it's exactly. It's, it's that type of thing. And it comes out of um, a theology which is called dominionism or dominion theology or kingdom now. It's all these derivations. And uh, also involved in the new apostolic reformation, NAR, which you hear a lot about. Um, but at its base, 
one of the foundational teachings is, of course, that if Jesus was just a man, born a man, and the Holy Spirit dwelt within him, then technically you and I should be able to do exactly what Jesus did. And that teaching is just so prevalent now in the church. And it is complete deception because you and I cannot do what Jesus did because Jesus was, was, is, and always will be God. That's a fundamental teaching about God. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Jesus is God, he never changes. So he may choose not to use some of his power, which he did. He may choose to humble himself, as Paul writes in Philippians, and not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he may choose to do that, but nonetheless, he could have done it. And so now when you consider that, you think, okay, all of the flack he took that we're seeing in Luke's gospel, that he took from Pharisees, that he took from people, all of the ridicule, the scorn, the everything that was thrown at him, ultimately to his death... He could have at any moment stopped. And so not only did he live the life we couldn't live, but he lived a life he didn't have to live. So the tremendous temptation not to live that life and to do, that's why Satan came to him in the beginning. That's why he came to him, because he, Jesus could have done exactly what Satan did at any moment and that was the temptation not to do the will of God but to do what he could do and so it's a great um, denigration of Jesus to say that he was just a man or he was he laid aside all his divinity and then came to earth that just reduces Jesus and exalts us and is completely wrong so um but at the same time then, so he chose not to use or avail himself of some of the powers that he had, but he did not lay aside all of them. So he was still able to do um, many things that, as, that God can do. And one of the things that is repeated, especially in John's Gospel, but also in Luke, is that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what they were thinking. He knew their motives. He knew everything about them. In some ways, it's like, well, that's even more amazing than some of the miracles. That he knew exactly the motives of everybody who came against him. And no, he was silent against it. But what we're seeing in Luke is that, because we're in the teaching section, we're seeing that Jesus is answering questions that are not asked. He's, he's looking straight into the heart of the Pharisees or the people that come to him and knowing what they want or what they really are, are thinking, he answers that. It's the same, you know, it's really clear in John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, we know that you must have come from God because no one can do the things that you are doing. And Jesus says straight away, you must be born again because he, know, he knows Nicodemus' heart. He knows what he needs. And so he, he speaks directly to the heart. That's why I think it's so amazing sometimes when you read these scriptures that God speaks directly to your heart through them. And so it won't be the same for you as it is for me because God is speaking to my heart. He knows 
the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what Hebrew says, doesn't it? You know, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce through bone and marrow and to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And we see that, read that scripture with fear and trembling, but I think it's a blessing. I think God is saying, saying that to us to say, it doesn't matter what your words are. It doesn't matter if you get it wrong. It doesn't matter if you fail. It doesn't matter if you don't know the right words for the right prayer. It matters only that your heart is for me. And that's what he's telling you. The Holy Spirit cuts through all of the distractions and all of the ever, everything else of your life and knows what you're thinking. And sometimes that's really wonderful for me because sometimes I don't even know what to pray. And some, some situations become so complicated that it's hard to find your way through, like a maze. It's fi- hard to find your way through. But God never changes and he knows what you're thinking. So... Um, that's John 2, 24 to 25. John records for us that many believed in him there. Many believed in him, it says. But Jesus didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. So, you know, when you're reading the word believe in scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was a saving belief. The context is everything. John chapter 2, verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting... Well, sorry, I'll go back a bit. Um, Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man... For he himself knew what was in man. So again, it's, that's 2, 2, 23 to 25. Um, so we come to Luke's gospel then. And, um, and in Luke 14, what we, what we see, I think, is him dealing with um, five different kinds of people. And he's dealing with those people because they are actually... Uh, being hypocritical. And what I mean by that is they're not... He, he knows what's in their heart, but we wouldn't know if we just read what they were saying, what they were actually thinking. And so um, it's quite interesting to me to see Jesus' response to these five different types of people um, and see how he dealt with what they actually thought. So chapter 14, verse 1 to 6. Could someone read those verses, please? It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Mm. Okay, so here's the first situation. Um, Presumably he's invited to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Luke doesn't say that, but he must have been invited because he just didn't pitch up and sit down. So he's invited to this leader of the Pharisees' house and they deliberately place in front of him a man who has dropsy. Um, 
I think we call this entrapment in our language. This is entrapment. This is, okay, how can we get this Jesus to do something that is against the law? And um, it's amazing to me. Why would they do that? Because they have already know he heals on the Sabbath. They've, they've already heard about all these healings that he's done on the Sabbath, seen some of them. But um, they were watching now to see how he would respond to a man who's sitting opposite him who doesn't ask him for healing. That's really quite an interesting one because so far most people have asked him for healing. I don't remember one where they haven't asked. And so... Um, and Jesus doesn't speak directly to that him. He speaks directly to the Pharisees. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, they've already told him that it's not lawful. He's already gone through. We've had several, I mean, especially in those chapters which were dealing with the miracles. He's, he's had loads of times where um, he's done the opposite of what they said he should do. So first of all, what's dropsy? Do you know what dropsy is? Yeah, it's water retention. It's, um, uh, it can happen in your, anywhere in your body. It's just that your body re- you know, holds water um, in your hands, your feet, your head, your, bo- your whole body. You know. um, and they're watching him to see what he's going to do looking at this man. So um, why can't they answer? Why don't they just say, no, it's not lawful? There you go. Why would it make them not look good? Because they people were for Jesus. Yes, yes. They, they see themselves as a sort of a step up. Right, a step up. Um, so what are they admitting when they say, um, it's not, if they said it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, what's the truth about these Pharisees in terms of healing? They lack compassion, that's one thing, and? They don't believe, they believe that you shouldn't. Yeah, but also the plain fact is they can't heal someone on the Sabbath or any other day. No, They haven't been able to heal anybody, and Jesus knows it. So not only are they trying to trap him, they have got no compassion on the people that they are supposed to be leading uh, and, you know, leading to God, this is, remember, not, not leading in a governmental sort of way, although they did do that. But the Pharisees are the upholders of God's word and, um, and, and are supposed to be leading the people to, to God. And healing is one of the major ways that God leads people to himself. This is so interesting to me because um, I think it's really difficult in scripture to find an example of a believer being healed physically. Um, All of them are unbelievers, yes. Healing is for a sign. It's a sign to unbelievers. Now, I am not saying that God can't heal believers because, of course, he can. He can do anything at any time. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing God. But what I am saying is that Scripture records that healing is a sign for unbelievers to bring them in. What, what were the healings? All the healings he did amongst the, the Jews were to show that he is actually Messiah. 
because the Old Testament prophets had said when Messiah comes, he will heal the sick, um, cast out the demons, etc., etc. So this is healing that Jesus is doing is for a sign to unbelievers. Um, the Pharisees can't do the healings. They don't even try to do the healings because they lack compassion also. And what they do is they make the excuse that it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Um, so what does Jesus do when they can't answer? He healed him and sent him away. He healed him anyway and sent him away. And then what does he do? Well, he just says, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Because this is not... The healing of this man wasn't necessarily because Jesus could say, well, you can see who I am by this healing, although that did happen. It was more that this man needed healing and why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you do this? It's not. It's like if your son falls down a well, you won't think twice about it. You'll just reach in and pull him out. So this is not for any kind of theological reason or any law or anything else. This is a simple act of human kindness. And, and the thing is, that takes you back to what are the two fundamental laws of God? The basic laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the Pharisees, who are holding up the Mosaic law and saying you can't do this on the Sabbath, are actually failing in both of those things. And that's what Jesus shows them and everybody else. Um, so, okay, so what about uh, going on then? So could somebody read from verse 7 to verse 11, please? And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they'd been picking out places of honour at the table saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by you. Mm. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, thank you. So, um, I was again thinking about this and thinking about um, why these people wanted to sit in the most important seats. And the reality is that probably every human being walks around, before they know the Lord, with a sign on their head which says, please make me feel important or significant. Yeah, pick me, pick me. It's like the kids, isn't it? It's like when you're choosing, I know this from, you know, hard times when they're choosing netball teams and, you know, you're the last one picked or the second from last or whatever. So you know that feeling. Maybe some of you don't, but I know that feeling. So um, the thing is, it's like we have this invisible thing on us that says, I want you to make me feel that I have a purpose, a place, a, a significance in the world. And if we can 
understand that with people. I'm not talking about belief now or anything. I'm just leaving that aside. Just humanly speaking, if we can understand that, it really helps us in our relationships with people because we know this person needs to feel that they're significant to me and that they have some sort of significance in the world. If we don't see that sign, the opposite is true. We end up with really bad relationships with people because, of course, we've got the sign on our head, so we're fighting to be seen and have significance, and we're always looking for people to do that for us. And actually, I honestly think now that only Jesus can take that sign away or fulfil your need for significance. I don't think actually... Even as believers, it happens straight away. I think believers still need to still have that sign there a lot, which says, I, I, I want to be important. And I do. I do. Yes, I do. I think it's... And also, I think it's just... I think it's inbuilt in us in some ways. So in some ways, I think God put it in because he wants to show us our significance to him that we were created in his image and that he does have a purpose for every human being. So there is that in us that's like, what is my purpose? I want to know that I'm important. And if you don't get that in your childhood and then as you get older... Yeah, it is, exactly. It's the validation. And everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. And I think even believers need it. Um, if they're not... I mean, probably we all do. I think it's just something that perhaps as you go on in the Lord, he then uh, is giving you your significance, your purpose. But you have, to, uh, you have to listen to him for it and you have to know that you have to believe what he says. Um, so what Jesus is doing here, he's talking to these people who are taking the best seats. And, but actually, I think it's much more underneath. It's why are you taking the most important seat? Because... You're pushing yourself into a place and laying yourself open to humiliation, because someone more important than you will come in and and want and the host will say, you know, you need to give up your seat. Um, in these times, it was obviously the closer you lived to the the closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. And actually, when you think about the significance thing, the sign on your head, that has to do with character and all to do with reputation. What we want is for people, humanly speaking, is for people to think that we have importance and significance. Even though inside, unless you're finding your validation from the Lord, you haven't got any real depth of significance in you. So, so people, especially in our culture, it's all about reputation. It's all about what do you think of me rather than who I actually am. Apparently Einstein said that, um, oh, where's this quote? Try not to become a man of success, but try to become a man of value. I mean, he wasn't a Christian, so. Um, but you can see this is what Jesus is saying really here. You know, don't be pushing yourself into a place that's going to lead to your humiliation when actually it's not based on anything. It's only based on what you think you want people to think of you. Mm -hmm. um, Don't you think that society has kind of got strata as it's all class? Definitely. Like who's who in the zoo? Who's who? Yeah, exactly. Where I like sit? that. Yeah, who's who in the zoo? That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. 
And I th- but I do think it's a human instinct. I think we look for it. And, um, and so Jesus, you know, he, uh, he tells them, take the lowest place. But actually, even though he tells them, take the lowest place, because then you'll be moved up, I don't think we can say that, you know, he's teaching a false... Well, he isn't teaching a false humility. (laughs) You know, like, pretend you're not looking for significance and sit right down there knowing that the host is going to bring you right up to the front because you're obviously important. It is a true take-the-lower-place just because you think other people are more important. Well, that's a massive step, isn't it? I mean, really, seriously, do you think everybody in this room is more important than you? Don't answer. <laughs> you know, that's, and that's really what we're taught in Scripture, you know, in, in uh, Ephesians, is it? In Romans, uh, Paul will say, I forget which one, actually, Romans or Ephesians, he says, uh, consider others more important than yourself. And, you know, that's a hard call. Because instinctively, we are protecting ourselves, promoting ourselves, validating ourselves all the time, even though we're believers. So that being able to, or, or actually doing what Jesus is suggesting here, instructing, is something that only God can do in you. It's something only God can do. And that's why it's so amazing when you see it in people, because you know they've walked a long time with the Lord, and that he's done that. Um, Again, you know, Jesus is, is restating God sees your heart. He's not impressed with your reputation. He doesn't care if you're sitting next to the best person in the room all the time because he knows exactly who you are. Um, I think First Samuel 16 says that. Um, uh, James chapter 4 uh, God humbles the proud and exalts the... Uh, sorry, yeah, humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And as I said, humility is like a fundamental fruit of the Spirit. It's a, uh, a gift of grace. And the thing about humility, which everybody always says, is the moment you think you've got humility, <laughs> you know you haven't. So humility is not thinking too much of yourself or too little of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. Mm-hmm. How difficult is that? I think that pride is the most insidious thing yeah. that we are carrying around. Yeah, it, it is. It it's is. so difficult. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like bindweed, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's, uh, I love that picture. Someone said it years ago, and I latched onto it, the picture of bindweed for sin. That in the, I'm not a gardener, but... Um, Apparently, if you get bindweed in your garden, you have to dig out the whole yes. garden to get rid of it, rather than just cutting it off at the where, where you can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the unfortunate thing is we live in a body of flesh, and so the reality is that root will always be there until the day we go to be with the Lord. We're fighting a battle between the flesh and the spirit, or the spirit's fighting that battle. So I think it's, it's kind of naive of us to think, to expect to be perfect here. And that's another thing that dominion or kingdom now theology teaches, that we can be perfect here. Um, hello, Rosie. Um, when, when we can't be, 
I mean, until the day we go to be with the Lord, there will still be sin. Um, and the whole, but you see, that's actually for me an amazing thing, really such a wonderful thing. Because if God knows that there'll still be sin until the day I'm beamed up Scotty to be with him, and he's forgiven that sin anyway, I don't have to think about it. I just have to let the Holy Spirit have his way all the time. And, and, and expect that there'll be battles. You know, that... I mean, I do have pride. Everybody has pride. And it's difficult to, to not think about yourself at all. Because your whole humanness is screaming at you to think about yourself in every area of life. But it's wonderful to know that God knows that and that he's provided for that and that nonetheless, notwithstanding the fact that I still have all this stuff that I'm battling through, I have significance to him and that he has a plan and a purpose. Um, So... Yeah, um, you know, Paul says, doesn't he, in uh, Philippians, that the greatest example of humility is Jesus, that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, um, taking on, where are we, um, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul will say that he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So um, that's something that we can do. We can do this that Jesus did, because what he was doing was obeying what he knew God wanted. And all of us are able to do that. We just have to choose to do that and let the Spirit enable us to walk through. And it's that choosing that's the battle, isn't it? It's like... Read things in 2 Peter, chapter 1. You've got to keep on keeping on doing these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Towards Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Maureen. And it's also sort of taking every thought captive. Exactly. Because it's easy for us to have the wrong thought. Exactly. But yeah. we can take yes. it captive and claim the Exactly. And the thing is there in that taking every th- thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We often don't say that, but that's the end of the sentence. And so there is an obedience of Christ that we can take our thoughts captive to and and that's what Paul says is destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the most amazing thing, that as I even take captive my thoughts, that is destroying, or God through me is destroying speculations and fortresses. How wonderful that is that you know, we can be involved in the destruction of the enemy's work. And um, that's Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. Um, Philippians 2. Philippians 2. um, Yeah, 5 to 8, thank you. Um, So, okay, so Paul says to us in that that Philippians 2, uh, if you read from verse 1 to verse 16, you'd end up with Paul saying, imitate Christ. Well, he begins with that. Have this attitude in yourselves that was always also in Christ Jesus. And then all the way through, it's like imitate Imitate Christ. 
Um, so, okay, back to Luke, Luke 14. Um, let's go on a bit. So we've had two types of people now. We've had the Pharisees trying to entrap him. We've had the people taking the best seats and uh, Jesus warning against that. Um, uh, let's read, can someone read from verse 12 to verse 14, please? And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Okay, thank you. So um, <coughs> he's turning now from the guests who are trying to take the most important seats to the person who's invited everyone and said, why are you inviting these people? You know, this is the question. Why is this person inviting the people he's invited? And there's two answers. What, what are the main answers? I mean, it, it doesn't say it in the scripture, but it's, you know, sorry, Jane, what were you going to say? To, to make him feel Yeah, special. yeah. Yeah, to make him seem important because he's inviting people. He's probably inviting people who've invited him in the past and uh, also to, um, if, if you invite someone to dinner, you expect them to invite you back. So now they're in your debt, actually. They need to invite you back. So there's this twofold, but it's all about him. It's all about him. Um, so... In fact, what he's doing is buying friendship, buying allegiance, buying kind of uh, place or significance because he's inviting those people who will have to invite him back and, uh, and he wouldn't be doing that if he was inviting the people who couldn't invite him back. So it's all linked to the, the first one. Um, is he saying that you can't invite, you can't entertain family and friends? No, he's not saying that. Of course not. But what he is saying is, consider your motives when you're inviting people. Consider why you are inviting them. And what he's, he's going to go on to say is, but if, you, if when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind... You will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. So the blessing comes because they can't repay you, not because they can. So the blessing is obviously not going to be, even before he says the sentence, is not, you're not going to receive it in this life necessarily, or at least the fulfillment of the blessing, because they haven't got any way to repay you. Simple. It's really simple. But th the thing is, he's looking right into the heart. And we do that. We invite people that we know and love. And they invite us back. And we have this wonderful backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, yeah. And we have fun, and it's nice, and it's comfortable. And he's saying, what, what's that all about? It's not that it's wrong to have family and friends. It's not that it's wrong to care for your family and, your, and, and those that you, you, know, you fellowship with. But the whole purpose of your life is for something totally different. Your, the purpose of your life is to witness to the, the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
those type of people were excluded from the temple. Exactly. So they were the yeah. outcasts. Outcasts, exactly. They were the outcasts. They were the people that nobody wanted. Now, the thing is, I don't think he's saying invite them. I mean, for example, I think he's saying that to here because they're the outcasts from the temple. So there is a practical, specific reason for that. If we take the principle of that and move it into our uh, life sphere, I don't think necessarily he's saying go out into the street and get the crippled, the lame and the blind. But what I do think he's saying is your house is God's house. And it's for God's use. And so we have this, don't we, in in Britain, we have the, you know, an Englishman's, or in England, an Englishman's home is his castle. My dad used to always say that, you know. And and what he meant was when he came in and shut the door, there was peace. And there was. We had a very peaceful household. So there was peace and he was home and it was fine and he was loved and he was loving and and everything was the way it all was right with the world. But what Jesus is saying is radically different to that. He's saying, this is not your home, this is my home. I've given you this home so that you can bring in people to tell them about me. In whatever way you do that, it might not be cooking a feast and having everybody in off the street. It might be simply your neighbours who don't know the Lord, or it might be your minister, or it might be whoever it is. It's, it's for you to live out the generosity of our great God. And because God is generous, isn't he? Yeah. That's the whole thing. And only a generous person will invite people who can't invite him back. That's what he's saying here. The generosity of your heart will be paid back at the resurrection of the righteous. So, first of all, who's going to do what he's saying to do? Are the Pharisees going to do it? No, No, why not? Beneath them. Beneath them, which means? They're not humble. Yeah, they're not humble and therefore they're not righteous. They do not have the righteousness of God. They don't have the righteousness of Christ. So take that into our world, cross the bridge of time, and say, okay, why would we do this sort of thing? Why would you do it? Only because you believed that this was what God wanted you to do. So therefore, even to believe that God wants you to do that, and then have the willingness to do that, is work of the Holy Spirit in your life, which shows that you have the righteousness of Christ. You have been called righteous by God. You know, now I'm not saying it's easy to do. It's not easy. And in every situation, you know, maybe we can't do that. Maybe we live with unbelievers or so it's not so easy to invite <laughs> all everybody in, you know. But nonetheless, where's your heart on it? Where is your heart on it? That's the big thing because that's what Jesus is saying here. He knows the heart of these people. You can see that he does. He's going to go on to say to the guests that the man had invited, um, who he's just told, don't take the best seats. He's, he's saying, invite the people who can't have you back. And to the one who'd invited him, he knows that he's invited him because he thinks Jesus is important. Mm. Oh, of course, he's right, but he's, uh, he's going to cut right across that and say, invite those people be an example of the generosity of God. And that's tricky because we live in a world that says, oh, hold on to it. You don't know how much you might need and you don't know 
who you're inviting in and, and all of that. I used to, when I invited people round for a meal, go absolutely mad yeah. trying to make this perfect meal. Yes. I was like, I'm going to give you a starter. You know, <laughs> almost invade the table. Yeah. Yeah. I used to go absolutely mad, yeah. even really stressed. And I thought, for God's sake, this is totally wrong. Yeah. This is not what it's Yeah, about. exactly. And, and what you've really been talking about, actually, is mm. not your home to me. Mm. Actually, hospitality. It's pointless, it's a bit like the old Corinthians. Yeah. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians yeah. 13. If I do this, but I yeah. have love. Yeah. If I invite people, yeah. yeah. actually, I'm not doing it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We'll just share fellowship. Yeah, them. exactly. So now I'm, you know, they just get pot luck. <laughs> <laughs> they get bread and dripping now. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that was a learning thing. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just following that quickly, that you know, we talk about the gift of hospitality, it is listed as a gift in scripture, but that doesn't mean inviting your friends for dinner. The hospitality that the scripture talks about is opening your house to someone who doesn't have a house. It's the what's, what's mine is yours idea, and the hospitality that was shown. You know, I think Hebrews talks about. Um, don't give up meeting together, and I think it talks about hospitality, and maybe chapter 12 or 10 to 12. Yeah, and basically that's because the Jews who were professing Jesus or who had come to faith in Jesus were ostracized by their own families and lost their jobs, lost their family, lost their home. So what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, you know, bring them into your home. They need a home. They need a house. They need a bed. They need food, and you have that. That's what hospitality is. Hospitality is not being, you know, cheerful and happy and able to be a good hostess. Hospitality is giving what you have to someone else because they need it. Um, so, yeah, anyway. So, um, yeah, uh, they would be blessed at the resurrection of the righteous and uh, or repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I mean, that's repeated over and over in Scripture that, um, you know, there are rewards um, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew. Um, yeah, and, and only the righteous would even think of doing it because only the righteous believe in a resurrection where there are rewards and blessing, etc., etc. So, um, so he's going to go on now, verse 15 to 24. Could somebody read those verses, please? Now, one of those, now when one of those who sat at, at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. Ask, uh, I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and uh, lanes of the city, and bring in, uh, bring in here the poor and the, the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Thank you. Okay, so um, one of the people there is expecting, fully expecting to be at the feast in the resurrection of the just. And um, what Jesus does is to tell a parable that talks about the fact that don't have false confidence. Don't have a false confidence that because you are in a particular religion, because you are in uh, what you think is the covenant family of God, if you are not, if your heart is not right with God, you will not sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You will not sit down at the feast of the righteous. And this is as clear as anything um, that he's talking to the Israelites who thought they were Israelites because they uh, were circumcised, because they went to the temple um, and did what they thought was necessary. Um, it's easy for us to see that in terms of them, but it's more difficult for us to see that in terms of ourselves. Um, I think that there's a lot of Christendom, a lot of the professing church, that are deceived about whether they're going to be in the kingdom of God. Um, and it's they're deceived because of various wrong theologies or because their own heart is deceiving them, because they have believed the lie that behavior is the uh, evidence of your salvation. I mean, it is, the, it is an evidence of salvation, but what is the biggest evidence of salvation? What would be the biggest evidence of? The way you walk on with the Lord. Yeah. Your, what did you say? Repentance. Your repentant heart and the change. So the change would involve the behaviour that you see, but uh, Holy Spirit. Yeah, the work of the Holy Spirit in you. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in you? The fruit of the Spirit. We have We're in a church that is measuring your Christianity by the gifts of the Spirit, and not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what God does on the inside of you. And it brings forth what? He brings forth what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Um, the gifts of the Spirit are a different thing. The gifts of the Spirit are the Holy Spirit working through people at particular times for particular uh, purposes and can be copied, imitated. Satan can heal. Satan can do miracles. Satan can stand up and teach. Satan can serve. Satan can do all of the things that we would call gifts of the Spirit. But he cannot do them with the holiness of the Spirit within. So, so the reason I'm saying is, of course your behavior matters. But it matters mostly to the believer. 
If I were to say to you, you can go and live exactly as you want and nothing will happen, you're still going to be saved, you would not go out and live an unholy life. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives within you, because you love God and you know that he loves you. So, so the, the heart condition, the way that you feel and think about God and about other people is the basic evidence of your salvation. That's why you know if you're critical all the time about other people, there's something not quite right with you. I don't mean you're not saved, but I mean there's something that you need to work through with the Lord. If there's always criticism, if there's always judgmentalism, if you've still got tons of bitterness in your heart, if you still have rejection issues, I don't mean that they're automatically going to disappear, but what I do mean is that the Holy Spirit will not allow those things to stay and to keep on messing you up. So he will keep bringing you back to those issues that have that held you up before because he'll want to change them. Now, no one else will see that necessarily. That won't be that you suddenly go out and do a tremendous work for God. So it, it's a tricky one because, of course, repentance, uh, John the Baptist was saying, you know, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. Of course, repentance changes the way you live. But the biggest evidence is what happens within you. That now you're not necessarily bothered about taking the best seat at the table. That you understand that though you don't fully grasp the love of God for you, you believe that he loves you. And it becomes less important that everyone else loves you too. You know, of course this is on a, a scale. It doesn't all happen at once. But that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we miss that, really. And, yeah. So, Jesus is now talking about these people who have a false confidence. They think that they're going to be at the kingdom feast. And he's talking specifically to the Jews. And, um, and it's quite interesting because you could read this and think, well, somebody says I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Okay, so what do we think about that excuse? Yeah. Why is it lame? Apparently, in, in that time, in that place, when you were invited to a feast, you were invited long in advance, and you knew the day, but you didn't know the particular time. Because it depended how many people were coming as to how many animals needed to be slain and cooked. So until the host knew whoever was coming, how many were coming and how long that would take, he couldn't tell you the exact time. So often you knew, you knew the day right up until the day, but it wasn't until the morning or the night before that the, the host would send to you and say, OK, it's at six o'clock or it's at four o'clock. So these excuses have to be seen in the light of that truth. So if you bought a piece of land... Um, how long buying a piece of land does buying a piece of land take? It's a long time. It takes, it's complicated. It takes a long time. You've got a lot of paperwork. He's going to have had to look at his land long before the uh, signing or the purchasing is going on. So his, his, uh, his excuse is an excuse. And he's making that excuse why? He doesn't want to go. Why doesn't he want to go? 
Not really, we don't know, but we know that something else was more important. Something else was more important. Not necessarily even the land, but, but something else is more important. What about the uh, oxen, the ten oxen? Would you ever buy ten oxen or animals without testing them first? So this is not something that he would have to do at the last minute, knowing that this day was the day of the feast. So again, um, it's, a, it's a, uh, an excuse. You don't buy a car and then take it out for a test drive. You, you test drive it and then you buy it, and that has to have happened. What about the third person? I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Is that a bona fide reason? No, why not? Because he's got for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but also, weddings are very complicated affairs in the Jewish yeah, tradition. It just doesn't happen like ours. You run to the registry office sometimes, get married and go home. That's not how it is. So this would have been a very elaborate uh, uh, ceremony and feast and everything else. So there is no way, if he had known he would be marrying someone, that he would have accepted the invitation to the feast that this other guy is now inviting him to. So all of these excuses, which we knew anyway, are not good excuses. So um, what happens with the people? They don't want to go, so what does the um, host do? Go and get those people who um, are considered inferior. So, such as the man with dropsy that we've just read about. Um, but there's still room. So, who else is invi invited? The down and outs. The down and outs. Who are they? Hedges, yeah. But I think, think about this in the Jewish context. So, the first ones are the invited guests. Then you've got all the lame and the outcasts and the blah, 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 but still Jews. Now you've got the people in the hedgerows, the ones that are completely and utterly outside of the family of Israel. Now you've got the Gentiles, almost certainly. So he's saying, bring those in too. The Gentiles are unclean in a spiritual way, in a physical way, in every which way. So... Um, what happened at the end of this parable? What's the last statement? None of the men who have been invited will taste his dinner. Right. So what does that imply? Well, I mean, it says that they're none going to taste it. But what's he going to do when, the, when enough people have come in? He's going to shut the door. He's going to shut the door. What happened with Noah and the ark? God shut the door. What's going to happen when the last of the Gentiles comes in? Rosie, we were talking about it last night. I have to attribute this to Rosie because she said this last night. What will happen when the last of the Gentiles comes in? Christ will return. The church will be finished and Christ will rapture us all up. So um, there is a moment when people can't accept the invitation, even though... They think maybe they've got time. I'm sure these people who said, oh, actually, would it be all right if I did this or did that? They didn't think that that might be the last feast they'd ever be invited to. They didn't really think that this was a permanent thing. But that's what Jesus is saying. Don't place your confidence in anything 
outside of, you know, your relationship with God? What is your relationship with God like? You know, and it won't matter that you walked up an aisle, you know, and, and accepted Jesus, which is not scriptural, um, you know, 25 years ago, if your whole life is unchanged and your heart is unchanged since then. That, that's not it. So you might have received an invitation 25 years ago, but you didn't accept it. You didn't receive it for yourself. So that's the difference. When we were invited to the feast, when, was, when did the feast begin for us? The day of the invitation. You, were invite, you came into the feast of God. So, um, yeah. Um, so the excuses may have seemed good to the people who had the excuses. Maybe they did think that these were good reasons. And these, these people were proud. They, the Jews were proud that they were going to be, they were the people of God and they would be in the kingdom of God and that they would rule and reign on earth and that Israel would be the head and not the tail, all the promises of the Old Testament. They actually were proud of those things and thought that they should have them without understanding that, as I said before, true circumcision is of the heart and that it's a heart condition. Um, what about today then? So today, because this parable fits today. What are the excuses people make today? Haven't got time. Not good enough. Yeah, not good enough. Well, last week you said people will say, I wish I had your faith. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But they don't really mean it. No, they nice. don't. Yeah, they don't. They don't. Yeah, it's because there's something more important. Yeah. So much more focused on material. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not necessarily bad or sin that keeps people away from God. I think it's simply that they place more importance on it. And I mean, that's what our walk with the Lord is what Jesus is always talking to us about. You know, who's the most important in your life? Is it your family? Is it your, your, edu is it your education? Is it this? Is it that? Or is it me? There's so many things that are not bad but that we place more importance on. And, um, yeah. And we live in a time where people need to hear the gospel. And we need to find ways to preach the gospel because the, some of the old ways don't fit. Because we're te talking to people now who don't understand what sin is. Yeah. They have no clue what sin is. No. Yeah. 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 It's uh, difficult. Oh, actually, strangely, because um, someone has asked me a couple of times. I, they asked me the first time a few months ago, and I forgot it, and now they've asked me again to put the gospel message online, a simple gospel message spoken and written on our website. And I think it's a really good idea, but you, won't, you cannot imagine how difficult that is to write. It's so difficult. What do you say in a gospel message today? Yeah. Um, and it's light now, isn't it? Because everybody emphasises the fact of the, everybody on the boat, yeah. on, on the, yeah, the ark. But 
but nobody sees the sinners that are trying exactly. to do it. Exactly, exactly. And I realised when I was trying to do it that I... The gospel I preach is a gospel that you can preach to believers because we understand sin. We know what it is. We know what repentance is. We know what redemption is. But a lot of people, they have no clue what those things are. And it's a difficult one. I've got a good friend who's um, Buddhist and she she exemplifies far more than I ever have done. Her house is open. Mm. She does invite them Mm. to come. Come mm. back. She's always helping people, mm. and I just think, and, and she's very happy for me to be a Christian. Yeah, she wants me to be very happy that she's a Christian. Yeah, I haven't got a clue how to. No, how to, no. I don't know where no. to go. <laughs> <laughs> I just think she shows me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah, I'm sure she doesn't Sue, but but the thing is, yeah, it's, that's exactly it. Yeah. So see what's wrong. No, and and how do we? Because these people had false confidence, and your friend has false confidence. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's how we do that. And, I, I mean, I, I think we are reaching the end. And I do think that it's more and more important that we know how to preach the gospel. But, but I actually think that often if we're preaching it in the wrong way to people who don't understand what sin is, and, you know, actually we're doing more harm than good. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, uh, on that note, just before we take a break, uh, next, you, well, you know that Maureen and Jill go out every week on the streets. Always makes me laugh to say that, but you know what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> um, but next week is the third Tuesday of the month, and that is the day that is uh, designated for Desiring Truth to be out uh, evangelising. And... Um, their questionnaire that they have is good. Um, So you get a questionnaire, you get a little booklet, you get all sorts of things that you need to talk to people about Jesus. And it's easy. And there's some people who sing, uh, which stops people in their tracks. You can't imagine it, but their voices must be good. And so... um, uh, or at least the Holy Spirit, Maureen's shaking her head at the back, so the Holy Spirit is there. Um, So if you can go out the third Tuesday, so that would be next Tuesday... Um, they go out from about one till about two-ish. Then they come back and we have praise in the Lord because of what's happened. Father, thank you that um, thank you that you've made a way for us to um, be able to do all the things that we want to do, to have a bigger room to um, sit in, to be able to come here and make coffee and sit on comfy seats and talk to one another. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to open up more and more things for this ministry it's an amazing blessing lord to to see you at work and um and i i would ask lord that you would help us to um really see from this chapter that we're looking at in luke um look at our own lives and see what's important and what we can perhaps um i don't know lay aside or put less attention on to just and help us I think mostly for me, Lord, to, to really understand and believe, actually, lay hold of the fact that you do know the end from the beginning and that you are the only one who can work out so much of my life and our lives and, and to really trust you with that and just praise you that you will do it. Lord, yeah, I need training and practice at that and I, I thank you that you'll do it because that's what you want. 
And um, so now in this last little section, Lord, if you could, um, or if you would, um, just show us more of your wonderful word that um, it might really make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so could somebody read uh, verse 25 to 35, please? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, anyone of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you. Okay, so um, Luke begins here with, Now large crowds were going along with him, with Jesus. And that's quite interesting to me because Jesus knows the hearts of people. And so he knows that the large crowds are not necessarily following him for the right reason. And so I think that it, we know, because he says in other places, that they're following him only because they want to see miracles. They're following him because of what he can give them. Because when he spoke to his disciples after the feeding of the 5,000, he said, you're only following me because you want bread, you want food. So, you know, what they, he could give them. And a few, I think, hoped that he would be the Messiah they were expecting, which is the one who would overthrow Rome and set up the throne of David. So I think that it's interesting to me that huge crowds are following him. I think we said last week that those huge crowds would follow him all the way to Jerusalem, and they, in Jerusalem, would be laying down palm, palm leaves and saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so... Um, and so what's incredible to me is that that huge crowd following Jesus, when he could have said anything to them, anything at all, he deliberately preached a sermon that would thin out their ranks. He deliberately preached or talked in a parable in a way that would sort out why they were following him. And I think as Christians or in the church, we don't see very much of that. We see, how can, I, how can I preach a sermon? How can I best include all these people? How can I keep them rather than how can I divide them? And um, I've said many, many, many times I know, um, I, I know that, that God is 
I can't remember if he told me this or if I thought it, and, but I know it, that he is um, separating a people through his word and by his word. I know he's doing that. He's been doing that for a long time. Uh, he, is, he is separating those who want him for him, and he's doing that by, uh, by his word. And I don't know that that means that some are not saved and some are. I don't mean that. But I mean that he is definitely, uh, yeah, separating people. And I've seen that happen. And I'm still seeing that happen. I think you can see it in churches. You can see it in ministries. You can see it in all sorts of ways. Um, You know that the word of God separates your thoughts. You know that he says something to you through his word. And it really does tell you something about yourself and then you have the choice will you stay with what he's told you and work that through with him or will you walk away from it and say that's too hard and that's exactly what he says in these last verses of chapter 14 and um and in in john chapter 6 uh at the end of chapter 6 very long chapter about 70 verses in john chapter 6 what you see at the end is that many, many disciples walked away from Jesus because what he was saying to them was too hard. They actually say, this is too hard for us. And so they left him. And this is what's going to happen with this crowd. Over and over, he is going to thin down, thin down, thin down this crowd. And I think that's what Desiring Truth is actually doing, you know, Sometimes we've had loads and loads. The first conference we had, there were 70 people pitched up. The very first one. I don't know how that happened, except that Wendy and her friend Helen called everybody they knew and said we were doing this conference. But um, many of those people have not continued because what they hear is too hard. Not from me, but from the word. It's too hard. And, and I just think that God is doing that over and over and over in, um, and I honestly think it's a way that now we can look at individual congregations or denominations or whatever, and we can say, what is the aim of that congregation? What's the aim of that denomination? What's the aim of that church? Is it to bring more and more and more people in, or is it to proclaim Jesus as he is? And as he proclaimed himself, actually, because what he's saying is designed for people to move away from him. Um, so, um, desiring truth is a place for disciples. That's it. It's a place for disciples. What's a disciple? What's the definition of a disciple? Uh, the biblical definition. A follower. It's a follower of Jesus. You know, I mean, you, you could say a disciple is a follower of a teacher but the whole point of Christian discipleship is that we follow Christ. Paul said, didn't he, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the whole thing is that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, what it, that means is that you want to do as he did and think as he thought. That's the whole thing. And maybe it's the other way around. You want to think as he thought and then therefore do as he did. And if there is any doubt in your mind about that, 
You need to check that out with the Lord. Because his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. It's going to come as a complete shock many times when you hear his thoughts and his thinking. Um, Not necessarily horrible, because I think that God is mostly gentle with us. But it definitely will change the the course of your life. And if you're not ready to do that, then, then Jesus will walk on. He will. I told you about my drinking. That's the big thing that God said to me. Uh, That was the biggest thing. I I knew he wanted me to stop drinking. I have journals for years with, with, you know, tears and sorrow and repentance and over and over and over again. But it wasn't until he said, Anne, we cannot go any further if you don't stop. We cannot go any further that I realized that it didn't mean I wasn't saved. It meant simply that I could not go any more, any, any deeper in my relationship with him. I couldn't know him any better. And for me, that was like, okay, that's it. I have to stop because I cannot stay where I am. Well, I think God's doing that with Desiring Truth. I think he's doing that with all professing followers of Christ. Yeah. I think the thing is, you can kid yourself, and that's what you do when you have issues. Drinking's an issue. It's like it's like bitterness or rejection or drugs or swearing or whatever. It's an issue of the flesh. It's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. And I think that the thing is, although I knew it hurt God and I knew that I shouldn't do it, and I knew that for a long time, um, and it hurt me, I couldn't, it, it wasn't until he said clearly, that's it, Anne, we can't go any further, that I realized the enormity of what that was doing with my relationship with him. And so. And you wanted a fuller life, didn't you? you definitely. I, could have, I wanted, life. did not want to stay where I was. No. I did not. I, it was just so real to me. I can't stay here. And so, and, but I think that, that it, it's, it's easy for me to use that because it's my experience and it's clear. I mean, I, I can, it was in April. In uh, when was my granddaughter born? It was the year my granddaughter was born in October, so she's now ten. So last year she was ten. So it was two thousand and nine. So in in April two thousand and nine, he said that to me, and uh, you know it's like night and day, because I knew I couldn't stay where I was. Well, I don't know what God's saying to you, but I know that over the years He has said or will say things to you because He's always calling us on. So it's, and it's not necessarily that you've got something like drinking. Um, it might be something else that you just won't let go of. You know, it might be issues from your childhood, or it might be loneliness, or it might be rejection, or it might be any of those things that just are insidious, and they take up root in your heart, and you just, you get so comfortable with them, and they don't affect your salvation, so you think that it's okay, and you can manage it. And you can't, because at some stage, Jesus will say, we just can't go on. We just can't go on. And that will break your heart. Go ahead. it's also to do with whether we're willing to do the things the Lord is asking. Exactly, exactly. 
And in 2010 was the year that Desiring Truth st started. So that was April 2009. We were praying all that year. Do you remember, uh, Wendy, about praying about Desiring Truth, about trying to find a name for it, trying to uh, set something up. And it started in the first conference was January the 10th, 2010. So it's like, it's so clear now. And I can remember you going on for ages and ages about wanting to give it a drink. Yes. Yes. It wasn't yeah. yeah, so much so they wanted to say, we can't go on it. <laughs> we can't go on. We just can't go on anymore. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so that's what I think Jesus is doing here. He is thinning out, deliberately thinning out the crowd. And, um, and he wants them to understand that following, them, following him is going to cost. It's going to cost. And they are going to have to pay a price. And uh, the price for me at that time, I mean, there's been other times, but the price for me at that time was that I, I, I did not drink anymore. Um, and so he's going to go on and he's trying to explain to them the first verse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Now, I mean, you read this and you think, what, what's that all about, you know? But... It can't be that he's telling them not to love their father and mother because that's a fundamental commandment. Yeah. It's one of the ten commandments. So he's not telling them that they are not to love family. He's telling them, as we all know, that they are to love him more. And the way that he's using love here is loyalty, allegiance. Where is your loyalty? Where is your allegiance? If push comes to shove... Will you leave your family to follow me? And, you know, those of us who came to the Lord after they were married, um, that's, that's the, you know, that's the thing. Will you follow Jesus even though your husband, your children, your family are not following Jesus? Will you do that? Will you, will you just keep going with it no matter the consequences? Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, if we have husbands or whatever, we're to, we are to love and to witness to Christ. It's not necessarily a simple right on walking out the door. In fact, it isn't that because Paul is clear in that, that he says, if you are, Peter and Paul both talk about being married to unbelievers, the unbelieving husband or wife is sanctified, set apart by the believing partner. So, you know, my husband is sanctified by my faith. He's not saved by it, but he's put into a place where he hears about God all the time. And I'm not to leave him. But, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm. Yeah. Right. I don't actually think so. I think that what it means is that he is, sanctification is just setting apart, isn't it, for, for holiness. So we're sanctified for holiness. But, so I think what that does is, because he lives in the home of a believer, and God lives there too, that he is actually in the presence of God in, 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 a, in a way. He's separated out from the world so that he hears more about God. He sees the work of God in my life. So he, in a way that other people would not be, he's, he's privy to that. Um, but he still has to make his own choice. He's not saved by my faith. Um, it's a difficult one. It is difficult. It's not simple. But, 
But then Paul goes on to say that if the unbelieving one wants to go, let him go. Because you don't know whether you're going to save your wife or your husband. So there are no guarantees about salvation. There's only a guarantee that if they're living in your house, they are in, in the vicinity of the work of God. A bit like the Israelites, in a way. The Israelites saw God. They saw the miracles. They saw his work. They were uh, in a w- kind of, they knew that God existed. Well, an unbelieving wife or husband knows that God exists because they see the change in you. And so... So you are the aroma of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And yeah. They do. I have a friend whose husband said that she bought a third person there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's very hard. Right at the beginning, my husband said, I've never put anyone before you, and now you're putting someone before me. And he was, he was right. In fact, he understood it much more clearly than I did at that time. Um, yeah, so, but, so I think what he's saying here is, is, is obvious. You know, no, you don't hate your father and mother and all of those people that are in your family. You just owe your allegiance and you have loyalty fundamentally to Christ. Okay, so, um, and then the next one. Um, uh, what does he go? Sorry. Whoever does not carry his own cross and cannot and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So uh, he's here bringing in what he says many times in the Gospels, that you have to carry your own cross and come after him. We've talked about this before, but just briefly, what does it mean to carry your own cross? Because he's not saying carry his cross. So your cross is not Jesus' cross. At least not in total copying. So you are not... Um, doing what he did. You are a recipient of what Christ did. So, but what is your cross? Your circumstances. No, it's... Sorry, sorry, no. No, I'm... Sorry. No, it's not your circumstances and it's not the difficulties of your life. The way I feel I've been shown a, a small way of carrying a cross is that my middle son um, has got a girlfriend who's now very close with, which came about mm. before the lockdown they are very happy for him to stay there yeah. and sleep together. Yeah. And uh, consequently, I am seeing less and less yeah. of him. Yeah. Because he's going there. Yeah. She stays in our house. Yeah. She sofa bed up in the lounge. Yeah. And she can stay there. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's only in a relationship yeah. that's been going on for, well, probably about 10 months or ヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤーヤー
Father, if it is possible, take this cross from me. Yet, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. The, the cross that we carry is the cross of surrendering our will to the will of God. So, and it's hard to do that because you have to die to yourself to do that. You have to die to your will. You have to die to your desires. You have to die to all of that because Sue wants her son to stay in the house. Of course. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And, and I mean, I did that with my son. And so that's a difficult one. They were living together and I still did it. It's like, well, yeah. Um, and it makes you look foolish, actually, in some ways, because it's like, what? Really? It's, you know, exactly. It's 2000. Yeah. So, but, but it's like, is my life going to be governed by God's will or mine? Is it going to be, am I going to do what he says rather than what I might want to do in whatever way? And um, so it is this symbol of the death of self and this death of our desires. Paul picks it up in Romans 6. Um, and he talks about that, that actually when you believed in Jesus, you were crucified with him, you were buried with him, and then you rose again to walk in newness of life. That's at the beginning of chapter 6. So what he means is you died to yourself and you were raised to walk uh, with Jesus. And that death to self is a hard thing. It's not easy. It's easy in some ways. Yeah, that's what the cross is. Yeah, it's your, it's his will, not yours. It's his way or the highway. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's it's all God's way, and that's what Jesus had to come to. He had to do that because so that we would be able to do that, and that's played out a million times a day, isn't it? We we do carry our cross, but we we feel the weight of it at different times. You know, we feel the weight of it when we have to make a decision like that, or you know. In, in, a, in a thousand ways, we feel the weight of that. Not my will, but your will be done. Um, so, um, so he says then, he goes on to say, um, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, and he talks about this building of a tower. So what do you think he means by that? Or what does he mean by that? You sit down and calculate the cost. Yeah. See, actually, it's quite hard, isn't it? Because did you sit down and calculate the cost of following Christ when you first... No, you didn't, did you? I didn't. I, I didn't even think it would be vaguely hard. I just thought it was like, you know, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be a Christian. Wow, that's great. Um, so the cost is not... I think the cost is something that you, you find cost, it comes in front of you as you go along. But I think what he's saying to these people is, you know, these people know God. They know his work. They know what he wants. They know the rules, as it were, or the way in. They know that they're supposed to have a heart condition that wants to do what God says, love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. So what he's saying is, if, you know, that's how much it's going to cost. So look at that and see. Now, for us, I think it's a slightly different thing, especially in, in not so much for our generation, but the people who come after. They have no clue what it's going to mean to follow Jesus. Yeah. So, so if they're not taught 
what it's going to mean, they're a bit stuck, aren't they? Because when they come to make the choices, they're going to make the choices that suit them because God wants me to be happy and he loves me. And it's never going to be the choice that I would put aside my own happiness to do something that God wants me to do. So the discipleship thing becomes really important. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, count the cost. When you're faced with it, what was the cost? And you, you took that step. And then, you know, keep on counting all the way through. Keep on counting. You know, there's a perseverance in the faith is evidence of, of salvation. You know, and there's a lot in that. Well, I think it's true. Perseverance in the faith is evidence of salvation. If you're going to walk away at the first hurdle, you didn't count the cost. Um, and then he goes on. Um, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not sit down and first consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? And if, if he's not strong enough, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So what do you think he's talking about here? Because I think it's slightly different to the builder. See, when you're, when, when you're thinking of building a building, he's telling you, think about what you're going to do, how big your building's going to be, you know, how many stones you're going to need for it. Don't just willy-nilly build the foundation and then think, oh, I've got no cash left to do the rest. It's like Rosie and Brian doing their, uh, buying their house and doing it up. You know, they had a certain amount of money and they worked it out, the cost that they would, would have to spend. So it would be no good if they spent it all in the first you know, week and a half, and then nothing left to finish. It's that idea. So what about with the king? So it's like, think and then do. Think and then do. Then with the king, what, what is the king to be thinking about? Whether he can win or lose against the Yeah, whether he can win or lose against the opposition. So he's, he's calling these people to, to God, right? He's calling them to God. He's calling them to follow him, to, to walk with him. So who's, who's the opposition in that case? Satan's the opposition. Satan's the opposition. And who's the stronger, Satan or God? God. So when you're standing on Satan's side and you're considering whether you're going to fight God, think carefully, because he's got 20,000 against Satan's 10. So what are you going to do? When you see the 20,000 or the power of God, what are you going to do? You're going to send out a delegation of peace. You're going to want to make peace with the stronger uh, thing. And I think this, I don't know if that's exactly it, but I think there's something of that in. And it's all about take stock, open your eyes, see what's going on. You know, when you're building a house, see what it's going to cost you to finish this building, to get all the way to the roof. When you're facing uh, an army, you know, don't just go blazing out into the sunlight like, you know, gunfight in the OK Corral. Go out there and look at the opposition and say, really, can I beat this opposition? It's all about thinking and then acting. Thinking and then acting. Um, why would he need to be saying that to people who are going to be his disciples? Why is he thinning out? How is he thinning out? And why would he be doing that to people who are going to be his disciples? Because 
Say that again. Because he knows what's to come. And he knows it's going to be hard. So he wants to present to them something that isn't easy so that it will be, um, it will sort them out. Um, Are you seeing that as a difference between a disciple and a believer? Yeah. Can you be, like it talks about the weak in the faith, No, I think that... I think there definitely is a difference between in in types of believers. That let's put it that way. Paul wrote to Corinth. They were carnal believers. They were babies. Um, lots of the letters Hebrews talks about. I wanted to tell you about this, but you, you're not ready for it. So, um, so I would say it's possible to. I don't think it's possible to be a believer and not a disciple. I think it's possible not to understand what a disciple is. I think that's possible. And I think that's the fault of the church, that we have a lot of people who who probably do believe in Jesus and are really saved, but they don't know how to live because no one's ever told them. And no one's ever actually said, you know, it's hard sometimes being a disciple of Jesus. You have to choose his way and not your way. But the blessing attached to doing that is so magnificent and so full of joy that though it's momentary, you know, um, what is it, uh, morning for the night, but joy comes in the morning, it, it might be difficult initially, but the blessing of it is going to be wonderful. But unless you walk through that with someone, they're never going to know. How would they know? They're just going to make human choices because their human voice is really strong. But that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the building up of one another's faith is how we, we come alongside each other and say, yeah, I know what that's like because I had that experience. And I can tell you, it's like childbirth, isn't it? You know, if you want to do right by your daughters or, or your friends who are going to have a baby, you don't say, oh, it's so fine. You know, I mean, I'm just going to go in, pop, it's like shelling peas, you know. I mean, I had people who told me that. I wanted to punch them afterwards, <laughs> you know, because it's not like that. You need someone who's going to say, do you know, it's really hard and it's very painful, but wow, when you've given birth, the joy of it is going to take your breath away. Because that, to me, is the Christian life, actually. The, the joy of it will take your breath away. And the way that God will come in and with his word and... and and just hold you in it. It's a wonderful thing. But you need someone to tell you that in the beginning. That's why discipleship is so important. It's crucial, actually. Mm. Yes, because in that example of going to war, it's just knowing how we're fully equipped. Exactly. Um, for exactly. The for the battle. Exactly. Yeah. And to realise it's a battle. Yes. It's a spiritual battle. So exactly. No, that's exactly it, you know. Because come to Jesus, it's like come to Jesus and all your problems will be over. That's just not true. On on one level that may be true, but on on so many others, you know, it's not true. The only the only difference now is that you don't walk through anything alone. And that's that's just wonderful. Yeah. It is, exactly. It's that parable, which he's going to say. Uh, you know, and, and I think that he's throwing that seed on this crowd. And some of them are not going to take it at all. Some of them are going to start okay and then fall away. Um, and ultimately, only the 12 and those who uh, gather around them after his death are going to be actually 
producing fruit or a, a crop. Um, mm. Sorry, I was just going to ask a question about the kingdom. Um, Maureen said, you know, knowing how to be fully equipped mm. in the battle, but mm. I didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying by bringing in the thing about Sending a delegation yeah. in terms of peace. Yeah. Yeah. No. It doesn't. No, no. You're not doing the battle with Satan. What I think Jesus is saying, because it's a very complicated, I mean, it's, it's difficult to understand, but what I think he's saying, and I might be wrong, is, but I think he's saying, you know, you, at the moment, you're on, because he's talking about people who are considering being a disciple. So you're considering this army that's coming against you. So look at that army and say how strong that is and can I fight against that? And so what I'm saying is that army is God. God is coming against you or coming to you and you need to consider, can you fight God and stay away from him? And the answer is obviously no. You can't. You're not strong enough. So send a delegation of peace. It's just... So actually the, the army opposing you is God? Yes, yes, safe. yes, no, no. No, because A, he would never be saying send a delegation of peace to Satan. And he would never... So I think it's all about think, reflect, and then act. Surrender. Surrender, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Send the delegation of peace. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that makes it much easier. Yes. Surrender. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Jesus has got to be first. And um, those who are disposed to kind of come against God have to consider the size of his army. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, uh, and the fact that, as Maureen says, I mean, it's not stated here, but the thing is when you do become a disciple, you realise that it's, it's not an easy walk necessarily, that you do have an enemy and that you are fighting. We have several enemies and that you are supposed to be fighting them every day, but that you are fighting them in and with the strength of God. And, um, yeah, but again, that's discipleship. How, do you, how would you ever know that? Yes. Unless, unless someone walked through the scriptures with you and said, look at this and look at this. And, you know, and actually, because discipleship is aligning yourself with a teacher, isn't it? So aligning yourself with someone further along the road than you. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like everything, Sue, isn't it? Reflect. You know, think. Think about this, because Christianity is a reasoning faith. It's not a jump off the cliff and hope God gets hold of you. It's that He's not calling you to do that. He. He. And and even when you are a believer, we're supposed to be with our minds learning about God. And he then promises that he'll put that into the fabric of our being. And again, that's, I think nobody's told that really. I mean, I was at the beginning of my Christian life. I was discipled absolutely up, down, all over the place, which was just such a blessing because I never would have known it otherwise. You could have told me 500 times a day, read your Bible, and I would never have got around to it. Never. There's so much teaching, isn't there? I'm just aware of reading yes. these chapters in Luke. Yes. Crammed. Yeah, yeah. What it means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
and who God is and who they are and how, how anybody with the right mind is going to respond in the right way. That's that king. You know, if you look at an, en- uh, an enemy or an army coming against you that is twice your size, only a fool would, would stand and not give way. You would be looking to say, okay, how can I make myself right with this, with this, this army? And, yeah, as Debbie says, sur- you would surrender because he's stronger than me. Um, and so he goes on then with the final warning. And uh, as I say, I think it's like just whittling down, whittling down. I'm sure the crowd are listening to this thinking, oh, my goodness. Um, so none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions, which goes along with the surrender. Um, thank you for that word, Debbie. I should have thought about that. Because um, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And the terms of peace will be, okay, I'm, I'm king and you're not. What you have is mine. And uh, so, yeah, give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, what will it be se- with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. So um, salt is good as long as it's salty. If it's not, it's thrown away. Um, why is he saying this here and why is it, you know, to these people? Because he says, therefore, therefore, from what I've just said. If it, if it, if a disciple is not acting like a disciple. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And these are all Jews following him, and they're all thinking that they're following God. Not because of Jesus, but I mean they think that they're fine. They're going to go to kingdom of God, they're going to be go to heaven, everything's fine, hunky-dory. And what he's saying is all of those things, if you don't give up all your own possessions, reflect, think about what you're doing, uh, carry your own cross, and then at the end, so you think you're salt? Well, salt's only good if it's salty. Um, salt is used in various ways. I, I looked it up. It was a catalyst for fire. It was for seasoning, obviously a preservative, and it was also used as fertilizer. And um, all the things that Israel as a nation was supposed to do, they were supposed to um, be a, a light for um, the world. They were supposed to be preserving and um, uh, purifying, and they were supposed to be fertilizing, because you know that was their purpose. That's the purpose of the church. We're supposed to be a, a light, a fire. We're supposed to be preserving, um, and we're supposed to be um, fertilizing the ground. Well, how are we doing? <laughs> really? No. And, and the thing is, it, it, it's often easy for us to look out and say, how are we doing? We're not doing well. They're not doing well. They're not doing well. But, you know, it's us too. You know, there's a lot in this chapter that I could say Jesus is saying to me, absolutely. You know, it's challenging. Um, and as I said before, you know, am I taking up space? Is that, is, what am I doing? Really, what are we all doing individually and collectively? And that's why it's so important to me that we really have a, we, we kind of clearly see what God wants us to do here now. We've got half the building, you know. I mean, who knows when this is going to come? Who knows? And what could we do with it, you know? And, and how could it be a place where 
people know. That's a place where they know God. That's a place where they love God. That's a place where people live for him. Um, so I've got here, do you want to be useless? Of course not. Of course not. So what do we have to do to not be useless? What's the first thing you must do to not be useless? Ask God what to do to not be useless, yeah. But from this, this chapter, the first thing will be, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We have to love Christ first. That's it. Love Christ first. We have to surrender our will, carry our own cross. Um, and we have to um, build each other up on our most holy faith. We have to reflect and uh, act. We have to think and act. And the thinking, how will we think? How will we change our thinking? Or how will our thinking be changed? Yeah. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore... Um, in view of God's mercies, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. And Paul will write to Timothy in Second Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. All scripture is inspired for that purpose. And um, in, in Jude, um, I love Jude, it's only a little tiny letter, but I really, so many times I find myself there. Um, Jude, about you beloved, verse 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And then this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's what I think those people who took the time with me 25 years ago, and it was major time, you know, that's what they did. They, they taught me that. They taught me that he was able to keep me from stumbling and that he would present me blameless. And that's just... I mean, you can't put a price on that. That is so priceless. And that's what this ministry is. We are a discipleship ministry. Every one of us is someone who can disciple someone else. So, Father, that's my prayer, that you would help us to, um, to understand that, to lay hold of it, to surrender to your uh, will for our lives. Lord, I know that, I know that we... We all have done that and are continuing to do it. 
But I thank you that you keep reminding us through every page of scripture, really, that you have a purpose and a plan, that we are significant. We are a part of the body of Christ. And, and as, a, as a part of that body, we are necessary, essential for the correct working of the body. And, and I do pray, Lord, that you'll keep on reminding us of that. And, and for those of us who are perhaps you know, not so confident about how we could be used and how we could help, just that you would keep on reinforcing that, Lord, through your word, that, that, that you do have a plan and a way and you do have someone that, that we are to come alongside and walk with and show them this wonderful love of God and this word that is amazing, Lord, and that really will, uh, as Peter says, that has saved our souls. And um, just, I, I pray that, Lord. I pray that you would instill in us a desire to do what you would have us do and to be a light, to be the preservative, to be the fertilizer of the soils in which you have put us. And, um, yeah, I thank you, Lord. I just thank you so much for Jesus and for his word. And I praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.